are you? Good morning. We're all looking for the good life, aren't we? A life that's fulfilling, a life that's satisfying, a life that's secure. And whether, whether or not you believe in God, I don't think anyone's so cynical that they think the good life is just about how much stuff you accumulate or, or how good your job is or things like that. I reckon love. What about love? I reckon most people would agree that the key to feeling that you're winning at life is being loved. Because deep down, we all need someone to love us, don't we? We need to know that we're cared for, that someone has our back. Someone cares what happens to us. We want someone to notice when we're not there. But how do you really know someone loves you? And what is real love? And how do you show real love? This, I've got a quote here from some literary greats. You might recognize this quote. They put it like this. You have so many relationships in this life. Only one or two will last. You go through all the pain and strife. Then you turn your back and they're gone so fast. And they're gone so fast. You know who it is yet? Next verse might help you. So hold on to the ones who really care. In the end, they'll be the only ones there. And when you get old and start losing your hair, can you tell me who will still care? Who will still care? Have you got it yet? Mbop, bop, 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 do wop. These are the literary geniuses. That's the verses you never know what they're singing in those because they sing it in a sort of a drawl. Just take Hanson off so you don't have to stare at them. So Hanson reckoned real love and showing it was being faithful enough to stick around until you get old and start losing your hair. So I'm doing all right. Sharon stuck around with me and lost my hair. And this book of Malachi begins by taking us straight to the heart of the problem between God and his chosen people, Israel. It's there in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? God's people are doubting God's love for them. They're asking the question, why bother with God? It doesn't seem like he's all that bothered about us. And as we go through Malachi and the rest of it, it shows ways that this has led them to becoming half-hearted and lukewarm towards God. And we won't get into those today. But throughout the book, there's this gap between the reality that God knows is true and what God's people think about him. All because they don't know that God loves them. So I ask you this morning, do you know that God loves you? Or are there things going on in your life that make you doubt that he loves you? Or maybe you're someone who finds it hard to even be- believe that God exists at all, given how, much, how full of evil and suffering the world is. There's an outline there in your leaflets. But f- so first of all, let's get into see why Israel are doubting God's love for them. They've got great expectations, but going through hard times. Great expectations, hard times. Okay, a very brief potted history of God's people. So God made a covenant with 
Abraham to bless him and his descendants so that through his descendants, the whole world would be blessed. He promised them a land of their own. He rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And eventually they end up in their own land that God given to them. And the high point comes in King Solomon's reign. But after that, with a few exceptions, it's mostly downhill. See, God had promised to bless Israel if they were faithful to him. But time and time again, they really test God's patience. They're unfaithful. They consistently rebel against God. Until finally, they suffer exile to Babylon. Jerusalem is reduced to rubble, and they are taken off into exile. But again, yet again, God is kind and merciful. And he promises that this exile will be temporary. And that they'll return to the promised land. And that's exactly what happens. So by the time we get to Malachi, um, they've been back in the land. And the temple's been rebuilt by about 517 B.C. So we reckon Malachi is written for around late 400s BC because there's been time for patterns of worship to be established in this new temple. So why do they ask, how have you loved us? I mean, isn't them returning from exile and having a new temple, isn't that sign enough? Well, in Isaiah, God had promised that not only would they return but that their land would become a place of abundance and blessing, so impressive that the nations would be in, in awe and want to come there and praise God. Um, it says in Isaiah 61.7, Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. So they were expecting the good life, relative ease of life, the national pride and political independence restored. A return to the glory days is what they had in mind. But the reality had not yet lived up to their expectations. They were still occupied by a foreign power, no real freedom. The temple was nowhere near as good as the old temple. You know, at least in Babylon, they'd been at sort of the center of the civilized world with good jobs. Back in the promised land... Life was hard and, well, from their point of view, a bit lame. It was like they'd um, booked a holiday from a glossy brochure, picked out the top resort, buffet breakfast, all-inclusive bar, daily massage, and arrived to find it was like a, a run-down caravan park run by overbearing killjoys. It was not even a poorly stocked bottle shop. Or it's like you hear stories about the new RA, don't you? Uh, it's, it's the world's most expensive hospital building in the world, and yet still heaps of teething troubles. They felt shortchanged. They felt let down. They felt unloved. And what about us today? If you're a follower of Jesus here today, do you ever feel let down by God? The circumstances lead you to wonder if he really loves you. You know, you pray for years for family or friends to give their life to Jesus. But they reject every invite, shut down every gospel conversation. 
we go through illness, bereavement, suffering, which, which threatens to overwhelm us. Char uh, and I were working it out. It's been a decade now where every year someone we know has either died or had a serious illness. Uh, and we prayed for a year off, uh, a year of relative ease, and yet our good friend has stomach and lung cancer this year. And you know you're supposed to have a, a joy and, and peace as a Christian. But sometimes you just feel tormented. Life can feel like one struggle and setback after another. Anybody know who this guy is? This is Marvin the Paranoid Android from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. If you've not read it, really good book to read. It helps you get just an idea of how big the universe is. As he, would, he moaned, Funny how just when you think life can't possibly get any worse, suddenly it does. You know, inspirational stuff like that. He says, life, loathe it or ignore it, you can't like it. <laughs> Even if things are going well, right, you think, I'm doing okay right now, doing okay. You go on Facebook and everyone seems, is making their life seem better than yours. So in my world, this is, is like this. I call it the pious pastor picture. All right, so I've seen guys from Bible college do this. They put up a picture like that and say something like, loving getting into God's word for my in-depth, life-changing 20-part series in Ezekiel or something. <laughs> what they never do is turn the camera around and show them that actually they're like this going, oh, <laughs> what on earth does this mean? How am I going to say about this? Being a Christian costs big time. Serving, giving, denying yourself, um, people keeping you at arm's length because they've labelled you as religious. And if we're honest, sometimes we wonder if it's all worth it. Now, I reckon Cameron's done a great job in 1 Peter of helping us think through enduring suffering for through per- enduring persecution, enduring suffering that comes our way because we belong to Jesus. Most of those sermons on the website, I recommend those to you. But what about other kinds of suffering? Why does God allow us to suffer pain and experience evil? In a moment, we'll look at God's answer to the question, how have you loved us in Malachi? But I just want to think for a moment about that issue of suffering And it's a huge subject, of course. Um, Let me just show you a book that's helpful. This is um, a really helpful book. Tim Keller's Walking Through God with Pain and Suffering. Because it's a huge subject. Um, Sometimes we've just got to say, I don't know why I'm suffering. I think that's the message of Job that it's futile and inappropriate to assume that we can always comprehend all the reasons God might have for any instance of pain and sorrow. We do know from Genesis that the world is under God's curse because of sin. But it's, it's not for us to say, like Job's less than helpful buddies did, that any incidence of suffering is a, is a punishment from God. They were wrong about that. And we do know that God uses suffering to discipline us. So Hebrews twelve seven, and your hardship is discipline. God is treating you 
as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? Uh, just like Wuffle learned, his mum not always giving him the easy ride doesn't mean she doesn't love him. And as we've been seeing in 1 Peter, God uses trials, times of difficulty, to refine us and strengthen our faith. Loving someone doesn't always mean making life easy for them. So with these Israelites in Malachi, say they'd returned to, and everything had been tickety-boo right from the get-go. Say they returned to a very comfortable life with national pride fully restored. Would that have led them to faithfulness in God? Well, more likely, it would have been a repeat of their history thus far, that when they get comfortable, they forget God who gave them that comfort. But still, I can think of cases of evil and suffering, and I'm sure you can, that we just can't see, humanly, we just can't see any point to it. And the question behind the question of of suffering and evil is, is God good? Does God love us? Well, let's have a look how God answers. So our next point, we need to change our love lenses. That is, what I mean by that is, we need to put aside our ideas, our very fixed ideas of what good lo- God loving us looks like, and get back to the truth of what the real good life really is. So verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. Excuse me. I have loved you. And the grammar of the, the original language there, it has a sense of, I have loved you, I've kept on loving you, and I'm still loving you now. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated. And I have turned this, his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. So Esau and Jacob were Isaac's sons, twins. And even though Esau was the oldest, God chose Jacob and his descendants. It was through Jacob and his descendants that he would build his chosen people, Israel. Esau's descendants became the nation of Edom. And, Edom sorry, and we heard about them from that Obadiah reading. This is Edom who wouldn't let Israel pass through their land in, during the Exodus. And this is Edom who gloatfully joined in the destruction of Israel when it came to their exile. But the thing is, if you take a detailed look at Jacob and his descendants and Esau and his descendants, neither of them have particularly clothed themselves in glory. The point God is making here is that these twins, these nations, they're the same. It's just that in his mercy, God chose one to be his people. So back in Deuteronomy, God puts it like this. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Because you're the greatest people? No. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest 
of all peoples. So when Israel looks at Edom, it's a bit like um, the movies. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Sliding Doors or uh, It's a Wonderful Life. The kind of thing where you get to see what life would have been like if key events hadn't happened, if you hadn't been born or you'd caught a different train. See, God hated Esau in the same way, it's a strong language, isn't it? But it's the same way that we hate to see the bad bad guy get away with it. The way we hate to see the strong put down the weak and gloat over their suffering. We hate that kind of thing, except God is all-powerful and has all authority, and he gets to decide what will happen to them. He gets to decide that they can, verse 4, they try having the last words, rebuilding their own kingdom, but he won't let it stand. They'll face judgment for joining in the trampling down of Israel. But as we get to Malachi, Israel have forgotten that they're just as deserving of judgment. Yet their exile and destruction of Jerusalem was not the last word. God's restored them back and Jerusalem's begun to be rebuilt. And all of it is more than they deserved. And like Israel, we tend to try and domesticate God. See, the truth is we were made for God. And we only find true purpose and meaning, the good life, living for him but we tend to reverse that we get an inflated sense of our own goodness and reckon that because we're basically good god is morally obliged to smooth the way for us and give us an easy ride but god says to israel look over your border look how things should be for you look at what you deserve but for the fact that I chose you. God doesn't owe us anything. We all deserve judgment. But in his mercy, he chooses us and finds a way, an incredible way none of us would have thought of, to love us. See, Israel could look over the border and see judgment fall and pray on Edom and praise God for it. We're in a much more privileged position. We can look to the cross of Jesus and see the judgment we deserve falling on Jesus. See, on the cross, we see the ultimate in suffering bringing the ultimate good, our salvation, which brings God glory. What looked like shame and defeat brings us honor and life. In Jesus, God chose to suffer and die in our place so that we can be restored from the exile that we deserve. So the point is, it isn't circumstances or how good or bad we are that makes the difference. It's God's choice to save them, to save us, that has made the difference. In chapter 3, if you flick over the page, Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. They're not destroyed because God stays the same. And it's not just that God has chosen us to have our sins forgiven, 
That's true. But there's more. He chose us to be counted as his children, brothers and sisters of Jesus, part of his family. From Ephesians 1. He chose us in him, in Jesus, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So in the end, God being sovereign over who is saved reassures us because it means it's not down to us. It means we can be certain of our salvation and that despite our inadequacies, when we share the gospel, others will be saved too. And God being in control of everything, including suffering and evil, we experience. That's much more reassuring than the idea that suffering is evil is outside God's control. That it's random, fate. Because it means that we know that our suffering is never meaningless. And we know that it's never the end of our story. So looking back at what God has done for us, remembering what he's doing for us now, looking forward to the future hope of perfect eternal life in his family, can all help us adjust our love lenses when things are really hard for us. They can help us to see God's love for us. So let's bring it all together and ask our question again. Why bother? Why bother? So first of all, given all the suffering and evil in the world, why bother believing in God at all? Uh, this was the objection of a bloke I was talking to at my friend's wedding last year. If God's, the argument goes something like, if God is all-loving and all-powerful, he wouldn't let evil and, exist, and suffering exist on the scale that we experience it. Therefore, God can't exist. Well, I'd counter that if God is all-powerful, you'd expect there to be things about him that we just can't understand. And just because we can't discern any purpose in a whole lifetime of thinking about it, about certain kinds of suffering, that doesn't mean that God doesn't have good reasons for them. So we're left to look elsewhere to see if God really is loving. And what we find in Jesus is that God knows what suffering is like. So whilst we'll never fully fathom God, there's, what we need to know is no, there's no mystery at all. To know Jesus is to know God. And Jesus showed us true love putting our interests above his own, suffering so that we need not suffer separation from God for eternity, the worst kind of suffering. And if you're not bothering with God at all, I want to point out to you that you are bothering with something. You are looking for something to love and to sort of love you back. It might be a person or a job or a hobby, all good things, but they aren't designed to take the weight of fulfilling you. They help. But what you are made for is living in relationship with your loving creator. 
Only God can give you that sense of fulfillment. Only God can ultimately make everything okay. And especially leaning on people to fulfill you, to take God's place for you. That's not loving them at all. But what if you are a follower of Jesus and you're wondering, why do I bother? Preach yourself the gospel. That's the, that's the application here. Preach yourself the gospel. Keep reminding yourself that God chose you. Remember what Jesus has won for us at great cost to himself. We have peace with God. Our sins are forgiven. We're adopted into God's family for eternity. In the here and now, we're given God's spirit in us to empower us to live for Jesus. We get to be part of his body, the church. We're living for what we're created for. And when it comes to standing before God, we won't get the verdict we deserve. Because he's done everything to make sure that we're okay with him. So we need to tune in to God's love language. So I don't know how you are in your families. In my family of origin, we aren't huggy, hearts on the sleeve kind of family, let me tell you. No one ever says, I love you. I think I've hugged my dad twice in my entire life. Once was at my wedding, once was when we emigrated to Australia. Both times really awkward. Okay. Yeah, I've never felt unloved. Okay, that's just, Our love language is more joking and toilet humor. Okay, that's... I won't share any examples. It wouldn't help you. But when we had children, Sharon was like, your family's weird. There's no way we're going to be like that. We're all hugs, I love yous, and everything. And it's great. Different love languages. The best way to tune into God's love language is to look to the cross of Jesus. See, the cross shows us that God is for us, even at great cost to himself. He gave himself up so that he could be for us and be with us. On the cross, we got proof that God has noticed that we weren't with him. That he wanted to make sure that we were okay. That God wanted us to enjoy being with him. On the cross, we see God's justice. And his love come together perfectly. And our camera's not preaching. I didn't want you to miss out on your weekly Tim Keller quote. So here's one for you. Okay. You are more sinful than you could dare imagine. And you are more loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope. You're more sinful than you could dare imagine. And you're more loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope. Look to the cross for Jesus, for God's love language. And look to Jesus' resurrection, which means that we, we don't need to fear being parted from God's love by death. It's the, Jesus' resurrection will, will be true for us too. And it's the promise that in every way, shape and form imaginable, we will be okay. We'll be looked after. We'll be taken care of. We'll be loved. So keep preaching yourself the gospel 
Don't wait for life to get easy. Don't wait to line all your ducks up before you're convinced of God's love for you. Don't try and create a balanced life, pursuing ease. Edom soon found out that trying to build your own kingdom is not the answer. So don't pursue balance, pursue a priority. God has loved you fully, and the best way to live is to prioritize loving him back in everything you do, with the people and resources in your life and all that you do. Make God your priority. As we get into this series further, we'll see why it matters that we know God loves us. Because when we don't, when we forget that God loves us, it sucks the life out of our prayer and our worship and our living for God. And we'll see lots of examples of that. But God does love you. So let's finish with these words from Romans 8. Some words from Romans 8. And as we read this, I'll read it out. As I do, I want you to notice the circumstances that it's assumed followers of Jesus will experience at the same time as knowing God's love. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.